Good morning, River Tree. How is everyone doing this morning? Doing well? Yeah, good. Excellent. So you know how I am doing. Well, I am currently involved in a week-long brawl with a raccoon. So every night around 8, 8.30, this little trash panda glumps onto our deck, one up behind us here, and just causes havoc. We had a little pot full of catnip for Meow Patina, our cat. Nope, trash panda took it, it's gone. We looked it up, apparently uh, catnip is an attractant to raccoons. So I guess that's not coming back. And this little guy is scared of absolutely nothing. I have you know, opened the screen door, run out waving my hands, hissing and yelling at it, and it just sits there and stares at me. At this point, I'm pretty sure my neighbors think I've just gone mad, just gone completely stir-crazy. They're not entirely wrong, but... So, if you're wondering where I'm at in quarantine, I am at the Make Mortal Enemies with Woodland Critters phase. So that's, that's how things are going over here. So, there's that. And be sure, I will, I will be sure to keep you all updated on Trash Panda Gate 2020 as it unfolds. We'll let you know what happens with this raccoon. I hate it. We'll see. <laughs> so this week, we are continuing our summer jaunt through the Psalms. And we're kind of doing a little mini series within our larger Psalm series. So for the next couple weeks, maybe three weeks or so, we're going to spend talking through some of the Songs of Ascent. Now, if you remember, I mentioned at the beginning of the series that the Psalms are kind of collections of smaller Psalms. So the, one of those kind of smaller psalm collections is the Psalms of Ascent. They are a 15-psalm collection that constitutes an earlier collection, collaboration, of works within the liturgical community. Now, what that means is this is a collection of songs that were sung by the people at specific points throughout the year for specific reasons. Most likely... These, this group of songs, this 15-song collection, was sung by people as they journeyed toward Jerusalem offering sacrifices. So periodically, their people would go on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, and it seems like these were the songs that they sang along the way. Now, Jerusalem itself, as a city, sits up on a higher elevation. It's on a hilly area, which makes it you know, a very good capital city, very easy to fortify and such. So from a, st a strategic standpoint, very well positioned. But because of this high elevation, people would physically be climbing or ascending up toward Jerusalem. He'd be rising toward the city. Hence the names, the songs of ascent. The songs that you sang as you were climbing up toward Jerusalem. Now this morning, we are going to look at the first psalm in this series, Psalm 120. And it's not all that long, so what I think we're going to do this morning is we'll just read it together, all through once, and then we'll kind of go back through it and, and break it down a little bit and kind of highlight some interesting features of it. So, let us dive in. This is Psalm 120. Start at the beginning. Just read all of it. In my distress, I cry to the Lord, that he may answer me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrow with glowing coals from a broom tree? Woe is me, that I am an alien in Meshech, 
that I must live among the tents of Keter. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. All right, so there's a lot going on here. Let's just kind of, kind of walk through it verse by verse. This opening line, verse 1, should sound fairly familiar. It is very similar in tone and structure to a lot of the lines we talked about in last week's psalm, Psalm 118. And last week, it was establishing the idea that our psalmist knows the power of God and trust that power of God and trust God in a larger scale to deliver them from their hardships. And that's certainly going on here. But there's something else that really, I think, is encapsulated and highlighted in, this, in verse 1 here, this opening line. And that is, it acts as a tipping point, a balance, or maybe a leap of faith, as you were. As you'll see, it's a way of our psalmist surrendering control of their natural tendencies, surrendering control of the situation to God. Now, we're going to come back to this later. This, that might not make a lot of sense right now. We're going to go through the whole psalm and then come back to this opening verse because I think it, it is really the crux of the psalm for me. I think it does some cool things. But we need to talk about the rest of it before we can circle back to it. So, moving on. Verse 2. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. All right, here we get a little more specifics. Verse 1 just talks about general distress. Here in verse 2... We get, we get kind of the distress, and it's a big one. How many of our problems or our troubles or stresses that we go through really kind of boil down to lying, or at its core comes from a lie? Whether it is someone else, either lying about us, lying about themselves, lying about a larger situation, whatever the case may be, that creates a difficult environment from you whether it's someone else lying about themselves to make themselves look good, lying about you to make you look bad, changing a situation. Just, you know, there's, there's all sorts of things that could be. We all kind of have lived through that. Or, conversely, the other side, what if it's us, maybe lying about ourselves or lying about something, hoping to improve our situation? Then we have to deal with maybe the stress of trying to keep up the lie whether you've over-exaggerated your qualifications on a resume, maybe, or told someone, oh, of course I can do that, and you have no idea how to do it, then you have to kind of scramble to try to figure it out. Or you get caught in this cycle of trying to make sure no one figures out you are lying, just the stress of trying to maintain a charade of a lie. So whatever the situation is, lying can cause some huge problems. Now, verse 2 is rather ambiguous as to who is doing the lying. I did a lot of reading on this, and some people think it's an outside person, that these lying lips or deceitful tongue is someone else lying about the psalmist. Others made the argument that this is the psalmist referring to kind of themselves, that Lord deliver me from my lying lips or from my deceitful tongue. It, 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 I would argue it's ambiguous on purpose, because it kind of could flow either way. For our purposes this morning, I am taking it as it is someone else lying about our psalmist. But if it's the other way, if it's a psalmist referring to themselves, just about everything I say, could you could, you could apply it to that situation as well. It's kind of a similar idea. But for us this morning, 
I'm taking it as someone else has lied and it is costing our psalmist. Our psalmist is in a bad situation because of the lies of someone else. So that's kind of the groundwork we're going to kind of move forward from. Now, I think it's interesting how our psalmist responds to these lying tongues. So look again at verses three and four. What shall be given to you? He's addressing the lying tongues directly. What shall be given to you? And what more shall be done for you, you deceitful tongues? A warrior's sharp arrow? With glowing coals of a broom tree? So that got out of hand really fast. But I think what's interesting is kind of notice how it starts. What more shall be done for you? I think it's interesting because is that implying that this liar has already kind of been caught? That this lie is known and maybe justice has been done? Or is it implying that the liar's gotten away with it? And the person is saying, what more do you want? What more could come out of this? Haven't you gotten everything you want? Either way, our psalmist wants more. Our psalmist wants more to be done to the lying individual, individual's group, whatever it is. Our poet wants to go full medieval and wants to fling flaming arrows at the liars. Now that feels kind of harsh, but how many of us secretly, deep down inside, have maybe envisioned or just kind of thought about bad things happening to people who wrong us? How often do we maybe dwell over an argument we had with someone or a situation or an encounter? We replay it over and over again, thinking of, oh, that would have been the perfect thing to say. That would have got them. That thing would have hurt them. Or we think of, oh, no, that would have been the perfect response. That would have been the perfect reaction to this. That would have, that would have gotten them back. Or how many times, maybe this is just me, that as a little kid, you're like, oh, if, or an adult, who knows, you know. If, if I had a billion dollars, like, what, what would I do toward justice, you know? I'd become Batman, you know? Like, we've, that's like the, the mantra we've seen. Like, I would take justice into my own hands. I would get justice. I could do it. Hopefully, I'm not the only one who's thinking this. Like, I can't see you all right now, but I'm really hoping you're not all looking horrified at the camera at me now. But I, I think, and I would argue that this is a natural tendency that we have we have a natural leaning toward revenge. Now, this could be something big and horrible that we want to do, but it also could be something nitpicky, something super small. So an example for me, um, I've mentioned this numerous times, I love playing board games. If I'm playing a board game, and you know, there's three or four people playing, it's a big competitive game. If someone blocks a move I wanted to do, or somehow, through something they do, make it directly impossible for me to win the game, I will make it my personal mission to make sure that person does not win the game. Even at the point of, like, I will sacrifice, like, my order to make sure they don't win. Like, I would rather finish dead last and have the person who, it, who I see has wronged me not win the game than I would maybe finish second and that person win the game. That's ridiculous, I know. Why? It doesn't make sense. It's just a little board game. But this is something I think is embedded in all of us. If we feel wronged, 
if we feel someone has you know gotten us in some way, we want to get them back. We want to make them pay. In our head, we want to level the playing field. Now, this is definitely not a new thing. I'm sure most of you have heard the phrase, an eye for an eye, right? Now, to us, this sounds really barbaric. And it, it, it's a bad method for doling out justice. You know, it spawned the kind of counter phrase, an eye for an eye would leave the whole world blind, right? It's, that's getting the idea. This, this isn't a great way to do justice. But in its original context, this law was actually put in place to be a law of mercy. It was put in place to prevent people from escalating wrongdoings, to prevent situations from growing and growing. So you could think of this law maybe like this. If someone causes you to lose an eye, all you're allowed to do to them is take their eye. You can't kill them. You can't go after their family. You can't go after their livelihood. Do you kind of see what this law does? This law had to be put in place because of our natural tendency for escalating. Our natural reaction to take revenge when we're wronged. When we feel like we're wronged, we want to right that wrong, but we want to right it in a way that makes us come out on top. Now, if we look back at our psalm, I think our, our psalmist, our poet, has a pretty good case for being wronged. Look at verses 5 and 6. Woe is me, that I am an alien in Meshach, that I must live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling around those who hate peace. Now, there's a lot of scholarly debate here over whether these two cities, Meshech and Kedar, were they actual locations? Were they cities out in the wild, out in the wilderness, that were known bastions for being hostile? That they were known areas for being very inhospitable toward outsiders? Maybe. But there's another group that argues that these are more enigmatic terms, that these aren't physical, actual cities, but they're meant to represent this idea of, you know, the legendary, very inhospitable, very inhuman people. Or maybe inhospitality personified. Either way, we get the point of what's going on here. We get the point that our poet does not feel welcome. That our poet is an alien. Our poet is not where they want to be, not in their home. Now, it's interesting. This word that's used here, alien, guer, in Hebrew, carries with it this idea of the alien or the foreigner. But it also carries with it the idea of the sojourner or the one without a home someone without a place. So our poet is saying that, you know, they might physically be in these locations, but it's not their home. They're not welcome there. Our poet, for all intents and purposes, is homeless. Our poet is without a place, is without a home. And seemingly this state of exile, the state of homelessness, is directly because of these deceitful tongues. Having this big woe is me section take place right on the hills of our poet discussing all the things they would do to the liars, it makes a pretty strong indication that our poet blames, our poet's current situation 
they blame directly on the liars. Our poet sees these liars and these deceitful tongues as the reason they're an alien, homeless, without, without a place to belong. So now the retaliation wishes of our poet, this idea of like fiery arrows coming down, I, I can get a little bit. I mean, I told you I'm petty about people in board games when people make me lose a board game. Like following the rules of making me lose a board game, I still get petty and want revenge. So just imagine if someone lied and those lies were directly responsible for me losing my home, for me having to live amongst people who hate me, having to live as an exile. Suddenly these fiery arrow wishes, I can understand a little bit. I recognize this is a wrong thing to wish for. And it's not saying this is a correct thing to wish for at all, no. But I can understand the yearning for that. I can understand a little bit the logic that gets the person there. And I think verse 7 closes things out very well, plays with this dichotomy. It's verse 7. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. Now, at first, this comes across as almost weirdly funny, because I am for peace. Really? Just three verses earlier, you were talking about lobbing coal arrows at people. You say peace, but I kind of think you mean the other thing. But I think this verse is getting at a much larger idea. The notion or the idea that though we may really earnestly and deep down truly want something, in this case, peace, our current situation, our current world, our current sinful nature just can't let us do that. We are a broken people living in a sinful world. And though we may really, really want to do good, ultimately, we're not strong enough to do it on our own. We can't achieve it. In the end, left to our own devices, we will ultimately resort back to sin, back into the mire out of which we were born. Now, this all sounds super depressing and really just kind of a downer. And if I were to end things here, it very much would be. But I'm not going to end here. I have two more pages of stuff to go through. And this, for me, take it all the way back to verse 1. Circle back to verse 1. This is why I think this verse is really the crux of this entire psalm for, for me personally. Verse 1. In my distress, I cried to the Lord, that he might answer me. This verse, I see our poet saying, you know, if it was up to me, I'd be hurling flaming arrows at, at my enemies, at the people who wronged me. But I'm going to trust you, Lord. I will cry out to you. I will surrender my natural tendencies to you. I will trust in your plan. Now, this takes an incredible amount of personal strength. This takes an amazing amount of humility to recognize our own weakness, 
to recognize this is something we cannot do on our own. And it takes a ridiculous amount of trust to fully hand over our distress to God, to give up the tendency to want to fight back, to want to do it on our own, to want to take things into our own hands. And I think that is what is so powerful about this short little song. In just a few verses, our poet establishes that their life has been all but ruined because of someone's lies, because of deceitful tongues. But rather than take revenge, which they fully admit they desperately want to do, they're going to throw this all on God. They're going to trust in the power, in the justice, and in the grace of God to get them through this distress. They're going to trust in the power of God to keep their natural tendencies toward revenge, toward sin, from bubbling up. They're admitting they can't deal with this situation, that on their own, they would just make things worse. Things would continue to escalate. So they lay themselves at the merciful feet of God and trust that they'll be taken care of and trust that God will handle their situation, their distress, their external distress of the situation they're in and the internal distress that they wrestle with between wanting revenge but wanting good. Now, I think that is powerful enough in and of itself. But now think about this psalm in the context of these songs of ascent. Remember, these are songs that are sung while traveling to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to God. The opening song, the very first song in this series, is about overcoming our desire for retaliation and about our desperate need to trust in God. Now, this week, as I was prepping this, I was reminded of Matthew 5. And there we read that if we're coming to offer a gift to the Lord, and we remember that we have a quarrel with someone that we're to leave and go reconcile with that person before we give this gift. I think this psalm is hitting at that same idea. And that idea is that our journey towards salvation, which is ultimately kind of what the Old Testament sacrifice system was anticipation of, and was a foreshadowing event of, that, that this journey towards salvation has to start with us giving control of our sinful nature over to God. We can't be calling down fiery arrows and be walking down the path of righteousness and salvation with Jesus. Those two don't really mesh well. Now, I'm not saying we won't make mistakes and that'll you know, completely kick us off the path. No, of course we're, we will make mistakes. We're human. That, that's what we're going to do. But even in those mistakes ultimately comes those distresses. We need to cry out to the Lord. But the Lord may answer us. On our journey toward meeting God, our race toward salvation and eternity, none of that can start until we begin to give over 
our lives to God. Let God take control. Thank you, Melk team. We have to start giving control over to God. We can't let our own sinful natures rule us anymore. And this has to be a choice that we make day in and day out. It's not just a one and done decision. All right, we did it, we're good. We're gonna have to make this battle every day. Every single day we have to choose to give up our sinful nature to God. But by the grace of God and with the help of God, through Jesus, we'll be able to do just that. We will be well on our way. We'll be able to make progress, move forward on our own journey, our own ascent towards salvation. Join me as we pray. Lord, we, we are humbled by the gifts that you give us. We are humbled by the fact that you would be willing to help guide us. You would be willing to take our simple nature, to help us get it under control. And Lord, we just ask that you do just that. We ask that every day you would give us the strength, the power, the willingness to hand everything over to you, hand over our distress, hand over our stress, hand over our anger, whatever it is, whatever is feeding and fueling our sinful natures every day, Lord. We just ask that we would continually give that to you, that you would help us with those. And Lord, we just thank you that you are a God of love who wants to see us succeed, who is willing to reach out and help us because that's the only way we will ever succeed. And Lord, we just pray that you will go with us throughout this week, that you will bless us, and that you will just keep your hand upon us as we move forward. Bring us all safely back here next week. In your precious name we pray. Amen.